Hello, friends, and welcome to the Now and Zen podcast. This is a show where we speak with fascinating folks who have an interesting and insightful Japan journey to share. It's savvy professionals from the arts, business, and culture. Yeah, the ABCs of all things Japan. We discuss and debate what it's like to live, work, and experience the most enigmatically exciting country in the world. Direct from Tokyo, this is the Now and Zen Podcast. Better sleep, better you. We all know sleep is important, and having a great mattress is paramount in achieving a deep sleep. This is where the Goo Goo Mattress Company comes in. Super comfortable, very affordable, and delivered to your home for free. Go to gugu.jp, read the many testimonials, and enter Zen in the promo box and receive a 20% discount. Learn more at gugu.jp and get ready for sweet dreams. Gugu, better sleep, better you. Welcome back to the podcast. This episode, I speak with Tim Sullivan. As you will soon hear, he's a very down-to-earth and culturally astute ambassador for Japan and foreign relations. His excellent cross-cultural understanding comes from his study of cultural anthropology and Rakugo. Most of all, though, Tim is a fantastic storyteller, and today you will hear educational and entertaining stories of his experience as a corporate mediator between U.S. and Japanese engineering teams, another about Mount Fuji and how this majestic mountain is culturally perceived differently by Japanese and Western cultures, and finally, his most humbling yet inspiring moment in Japan, which took place in a blues bar. In addition, we discuss Japanese humor, Peter Drucker, which culture really invented Ikigai, and through his intervention, how Americans learned to embrace the Japanese Hanseikai, or the self-reflection meeting. Here is a Now in Zen discussion with Mr. Authenticity, Tim Sullivan. I had been unconsciously projecting my American values on my Japanese hosts. And I thought just because I believe in individualism, free expression, fairness, logic, efficiency, that of course they believe in that too. And I wasn't even conscious of it. I was just unconsciously projecting. And I realized, oh my God, it had never occurred to me before the power of values in influencing how we behave and think and make decisions and interact with each other. And yet a value, it's a ghost. It's invisible. You can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, or hear it. And yet it has so much power over our lives. And, and I had never even thought of what a value was until this course. So that, that would be my advice for people's understand your own values first do that before you learn the language or at least do it in parallel i was i had learned the language to a degree to the point where i was instead of using language as a tool i knew enough to be dangerous and the analogy i use is learning a language is like learning the mechanics of driving a car you can learn to start the car to turn left turn right put on the brake and that would be analogous to learning the vocabulary and the, and the syntax of a language. 
But if you sure. don't know that you're supposed to drive on the left side of the street, the rules of the road would be analogous to culture. Now that Correct. car ceases to be a tool to get you from point A to B, and now it's a weapon. What I realized was I was running through red lights, driving on the wrong side of the road, running people over for four years, and I didn't even know it, you know, and, and I had focused on the language piece, and I didn't focus on the culture piece. And if I could do it over, that's what I would do differently. Tim Sullivan, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. The rebranded Now and Zen, Zen. <laughs> aptly named by you, podcast. So you did settle on that. Good, good. Yeah. Well, that was a fun collaboration. I got that inspired from you, and then I threw it back, and it worked out. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks. Happy to make a small contribution. Trying to be useful in my old age. You seem to be an engineer, and I know that you are a self-described consultant. You're obviously an entrepreneur, and you're a customer service advocate. You're a cross-cultural expert, an author, a storyteller, a musician. Did I miss anything? <laughs> um, no, you probably put too much in there because I'm not an engineer, but I appreciate I worked in that field for sure. But I've always seen myself more as an artist kind of personality, so it's kind of strange that I ended up in manufacturing. Upon graduation, I just got recruited by a Japanese company, and I kind of had to learn on the fly to talk to engineers and deal with engineers. So I'm, I'm more of a functional industrial engineer, but not a degreed one. And it was, mm. never, it was never my comfort zone, but I don't regret any of it. When, yeah. when you said a artist personality, what do you mean by that? I think I'm more of a creative guy than a uh, nuts and bolts technical guy. Just to give you an example, I spent the first 10 years in Japan, 1977 to 1987. Those were kind of my formative years. I like to say I was raised by a pack of Japanese musicians. I lived with a guy named Inoue Kenichi, who was okay. the lead guitarist for a band called Yuyake Gakudan the Sunset Gang, and they eventually morphed into a band called Sandy and the Sunsets, which was a new wave band. That was like in 1980. This, this, this is actually an interesting story because it was a very um, a inspirational moment in my life. So I'm 19, 20 years old. I'm living in Yamato City. I'm still in the Navy. And my buddy, who was my roommate, who, by the way, still lives in Japan, Dave Stenkin, shout out to Dave. <laughs> So Dave just happened to be a really good blues harmonica player, right? Just that was one of what he did. And we were both in the Navy. And so we're living in Yamato, which was at the time was a sleepy little town. And we're out looking for signs of nightlife. And we stumble into this little tiny bar near Tsurama Station called Bonanza. And it's about the size of a walk-in closet. And we, we'd never seen this place before but it looked really cool and we could hear this really loud blues playing from inside oh, cool. so we go in and there's two people in the bar taro shout out to yep. taro at bonanza and taro and he's behind the bar he's he's this tall lanky guy long hair scraggly beard and there's only one there's one patron and it's this long-haired hippie bearded guy real gentle demeanor we couldn't yep. speak any japanese at the time they couldn't speak any English. 
And but we get in there and we have a few beers and we start loosening up. And I mention, oh yeah, we really like the blues. And my friend Dave is a blues harmonica player. Tuttle says, oh, Kenny is a guitar player, and he pulls a guitar out from behind the bar and he hands it to Kenny. So Kenny's tuning the guitar, and I naively say to Kenny, can you play blues guitar? And Kenny, being the humble Japanese guy he is, says, oh, I'm just learning. I'm just learning, you know. And so now I'm worried that Kenny's going to make a fool out of himself because my friend's a really good harmonica player. Right. And oh, my God, when he started playing, his, his ability and his soul just blew me away. I was just stunned, okay? Wow. And I, the reason I remember that moment was I was this cocky kid from Chicago trying to act tough all the time. You know, how American culture is put your best foot forward and you kind of brag on yourself. And, and I just remember thinking, if this guy's being humble, yeah, I, I, better, I better shut up. You know, I better like think about how I talk here. Yeah. And it was a really powerful moment because my this guy, he ended up being my roommate for four years when I was in college. But it was the first time I met him. And I'm just thinking he let his guitar do the talking rather than telling me how good he was. He he just let the guitar do it. And it's so Confucian, you know. Well, the Japanese proverb for that is no arutaka wa tsume o kakusu. The able hawk hides its claws, right? Exactly, right? It's like that. And it was just, I don't know, it was a, a formative yeah. moment for me. So I ended up living with him in college. And think about this. I'm this young kid and I'm living with a rock and roll guy. Yeah. And they're pretty popular in Japan. They, you know, it's like a cult following. And I had so much fun because sometimes they'd need a roadie and I'd go on these tours with them, you know? Yeah. I'd tour Japan with them at once. No and it was kidding. just, oh, yeah, yeah. It was so, so much what fun. What did you do for them? I was just carrying their equipment, plugging stuff in, you know? And it was, and it was the first time I had ever gotten out of Tokyo. It was so much fun. I, you know, so I, I was blessed. I, I got to hang out with cool Japanese musicians and they became my friends, you know? And they're yeah. still your friends today. Oh, they're still my friends. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a great story. You have a video clip on your website and I think it's a, a clip of a customer service seminar that you did in Hawaii. And my favorite part in the video is where you talk about what's the current situation? What's the question versus what's the answer could you could you explain a little bit about that and actually i stole that from peter drucker oh really yes i in in the mid 1990s i started working for a japanese consulting company called japan management association and they were manufacturing you know experts kaizen things like that and my boss said, you yeah. got to start reading some books on management. And oh, by the way, here's Peter Drucker's book, Management. What I never knew was one, as soon as I started reading him, I thought it was going to be really dry. And I just connected with Drucker right away. And, and after I got way into the book, the light bulb went on. I realized this guy writes like cultural anthropology meets management. I mean, 
he he kind of thinks like an anthropologist, not like a dry numbers management guy. He's got this section on Japanese management, and he's got this subsection on Japanese decision making. And okay. I almost have the quote memorized. He said, Japanese and West Westerners mean something different when they speak of, quote, make a decision. He says in Japan, in the West, it's all about finding the answer. You know, our all our decision-making models are geared toward coming up with the right answer. However, to the Japanese, it's defining what the right question is. And as soon as I read that, the light bulbs started going on and I realized all these struggles that I had had. And this is somebody who had been working with the Japanese for a while right. at that point. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God, this is it. This is the holy grail of understanding the differences and how they approach things. And I'm not saying, you know, both sides are great or both sides are horrible. They both have good points and bad points. And it makes sense because Americans and Westerners are results oriented. That's what's the answer. What's the answer. What's the answer. And the Japanese are process oriented. What's the question. What's the question. What's the current situation. They go through the process to a fault sometimes of trying to define it from every angle and point of view that they can, certainly in manufacturing, but they are very disciplined about nobody saying this is what we should do until they get all the data in until they've analyzed it and beat the dead horse and the Americans. And I know this cause I, I ran a, an American factory for four years are the opposite extreme and they don't know what the situation is, but they tinker with stuff and they try stuff. And sometimes they get lucky and they get the right answer. But then you say, why? I don't know, but don't touch the machine. It's it's making good parts, you know. If you want to convince the Japanese to at least think about your idea, the worst thing you can do is say, I have a great idea. You already blew it because you didn't, ex you have to start with, I've, d I've done this research. I've got the data. I made my analysis. Here's how I see the current situation. Do you agree with me or not? Or do you have other, another point of view that I get them to agree on the current situation before yeah. you pitch your idea? Really fascinating. You do have a new video blog series. You've done five now. It's just like a one-point intercultural lesson. And I think on one, you talked about Kikubadi, for example, and how did you come up with the topics? These are topics I often talk about in my seminars. They're, I think they're interesting topics because a lot of uh, non-Japanese are not familiar with them. They right. may experience them, but they don't really know that it has a name to it. I think it, like in the case of Kikubari, which we should probably define the terms for people that don't know it, but it's the art of anticipation. And it starts with, instead of thinking of yourself, you're observing the people around you and what their needs are. And you're trying to proactively do something for them or give them something or add value to their experience without them asking you for it. I've seen American companies do it. And I know American people that do it, but we don't really have a concept that nails down what that means, right? We say right. proactive service, but I think yeah. it's a little bit deeper than that. And it so permeates Japanese society, like the beer drinking, the poor beer pouring ritual. That's yep. that's a form of kikubari because instead of, you know, how we drink, we I, this is my beer, I'm going to pour my beer, rather than 
thinking that, they're looking around and saying, forget what my needs are. What are the needs of the people around me? And having that mentality and being raised in that culture is, there's some really good things about that, you know? You know, I think part of it comes from, I think it comes, and don't quote me on this, but uh, I think it comes from a Confucian precept where you're supposed to turn down a kindness three times before you accept it or a gift before you accept it. And so kikubari is like if somebody comes into your house, in, the Japanese don't say, would you like tea? Because you know they're going to say no, even if they want it. So you just... You bypass that whole exchange and you just give it to them. You don't even give them a chance to say no. You just give it to them whether they want it or not. And some, as you said, it's a double-edged sword because sometimes they look at you and they go, oh, he's an American. He must want coffee. They give you instant coffee with lots of cream and sugar in it. And I wanted green tea, but they gave me coffee. He wants a knife and a fork to eat his sushi with because he can't eat. You can't use chopsticks. Exactly. You know, and the intentions are good. What I tell Japanese, especially in the service industry, I'll say, think of Kikubari a different way when you're dealing with non-Japanese. We um, foreigners, certainly Americans, we want choice. We don't want you to give us something without that. So by asking us what we want, it's a kind of Kikubari, cross-cultural Kikubari, because you're giving right. us a choice rather than forcing something on us that we might or might not want. That's a very good observation. Which do you find more rewarding, teaching Japanese about Western cultures and customs and expectations or the Americans about Japan and the Japanese way? I'm going to walk the tightrope between that, those two choices. I used to do both, as you know, but the most rewarding part was after i did the training separately, bringing them together and being the mediator and having them actually, with new knowledge, talk to each other with their eyes wide open, reflect based on what they learned, and then to propose to each other what they were going to do moving forward to improve their relationships. Because oftentimes I would go into these these situations most of the time where Japanese Americans were like mad at each other, pissed off. And in a mm-hmm. day and a half, I would generally be able to turn them around so they were like making promises to go out and drink together and to – How did you turn them around? That sounds uh, pretty daunting. It, it The first time I did it, I was terrified because I didn't know if it was going to work. So the first time I was asked to do it, I actually turned it down and said, I can't help you. <laughs> the well is poisoned and there's nothing I can do. And the, and you know how the Japanese are, oh, Tim-san, you must help us. You know, As I was thinking about it, I remembered one of the things that I learned from the Japanese that was always very effective for Kaizen was doing a Hanseikai, right? a reflection meeting. We would call it maybe a post-mortem you know, or a confessional yeah beat yourself up meeting you know yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know americans have a pizza party japanese have a hanseikai right i have to figure out a way to get them to stop pointing their fingers and to point their fingers at themselves and so i, I have to get them to do a hanseikai at the end if i'm gonna yeah. succeed so that that became kind of my goal of of the training and so I said, okay, give the Japanese to me for half a day, give the Americans for half a day, and then give me a half a day 
with the Japanese Americans together at the beginning of each separate session. So, for example, with the Americans, I'd have the Americans make a list of, you know, the easy things and the good things that they enjoy about working with the Japanese and the, the difficult things that, you know, kind of frustrate them. And I had the Japanese make the same list about the Americans, right? There's going to be no names attached to it, but we have to be honest and we have to, you know, understand where we're coming from. Okay. And then, of course, during the seminar, I talk about the history and the culture and, you know, Shinto, Buddhism, Confucianism, you know, feudalism, rice culture, and how those values are still alive and how they feed into these differences. But I come to the third session where they're together and I show both sides what they're saying. And this is when I was like really scared. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm pretty good at keeping things light, you know, trying to make little jokes so people, and it was, it, it was the best part of the seminar. So I had, you know, I had the Americans get in groups and say, okay, here's what the Japanese are saying about you. And if you don't understand what they mean or you don't agree with it, come up with a list of questions and we'll take turns asking each other questions. And I asked the Japanese to do the same thing. So the Americans would say things like, um, you know, the Japanese have secret meetings and they don't involve us. And of course I would explain, they have those meetings in Japan. It's not because you're Americans. It's because they don't want like confrontation and they like to work things out behind the scenes. And the Americans would say things like, um, you say we, you know, we're not responsible the way we act and the way we, you don't like the way we solve problems. What do you mean by that? And I would ask the question, I'd be the interpreter, right? And the Japanese would say things like, well, you guys just do trial and error and you don't try to define the problem. And, you know, you guys tell us that's the American way. I had to get the Americans in this mindset of Hansei from the beginning, I say, because I tell them at the very beginning, look, we're going to end this with a reflection meeting. And they're like, what's that? And I go, well, you have to reflect, point fingers at yourself. Well, why should we do that? And I go, look, how many people here are Christians? Most of them would raise their hand. I go, what do you do on Sunday? We reflect. Well, that's what you got to do at this seminar. Just bring that <laughs> feeling to work, you know, and, and the Japanese are going to do it too. So don't feel threatened, you know. I, I, I got to tell you, in most seminars I did, the sure. Americans would actually have better reflections than the Japanese in most cases. They would reflect and then they'd come up with really good ideas, you know, and, and they were all like ideas to reach out. Like the Americans would say, you guys are right. We take action without understanding the problem. You're right. We, we are guilty as charged. So our reflection is we want to learn from you. You're very responsible and disciplined about it. So teach us how you do it, but let's work as one team instead of you guys working separately and us working separately. And the Japanese yeah. love to hear that stuff. And the Japanese would say, we're sorry, we, we have these secret meetings. And one time a guy said, and he meant it sincerely. It was so really funny. He goes, so we, we do have secret meetings. So our solution is we're going to have fewer secret meetings and of course everybody <laughs> laughed, you know? and the americans understood the context so they laughed right for sure but it was so it was so meaningful it was like the most meaningful work i've ever done because i i could see in a day and a half that i made an impact 
You were like a cross-cultural crisis management consultant. Kind of. Almost like a marriage counselor. (laughs) Here's Here's a story. A true story. So between my junior and senior year, I, w- I went to ICU, Koksai Kiristo Kyo Daigaku. And so, I'm, of course, I'm heavily into anthropology. And, but it was summertime, and I woke up one morning. It was a beautiful day, and I decided to climb Oyama. I think it's Kanagawa, right? And at the time, I was living in Yamato, so I got in my car. I drove to Oyama really early. I started really early. And As you should. I start climbing. I didn't take the cable car. I climbed the whole mountain. I got my bento with me. I get about three quarters of the way up the mountain and it starts, I'm starting to get hungry. And I come to this opening and still the side of the mountain. I'm not at the top yet. And there's this just spectacular view of Mount Fuji. So I thought, okay, I'm going to eat my lunch here and enjoy the view. So I'm sitting there, I'm eating, I'm eating my bento and people start trickling up the mountain and most of them are elderly hikers right and the first i still remember the first couple is an elderly japanese man and his wife and he comes around the bend and he sees mount fuji and he looks at it and he he actually put his hand over his heart and he's like whispering to his wife ah fuji-san like they're like almost like they're in church they're they're like very reverential toward the mountain. And, and I'm thinking, oh, this is really cool. I'm thinking like an anthropologist, right? And so yeah. this happened again and again. Everybody, they come up and like, oh, Mount Fuji. They were so in awe of the beauty. And again, they're whispering in these very respectful tones. So then I'm, I'm done with my bento. I'm starting to pack it up. And I hear some Americans. I can hear them off in the distance speaking English. I said, I, you know, I'm just kind of lay back here. I want to observe how they react to Mount Fuji so I can make a cultural comparison. So they come sure. around the bend. The guy, the first guy comes around the bend. He looks at Mount Fuji and he says to his friend, look at that son of a bitch. I'm going to take a picture of that. And I just lost it. I just lost it. I just, I mean, the contrast of it would never occur to the Japanese to refer to Mount Fuji as a son of a bitch, you know, in a pejorative way, right? So I, I kept this story in my head and I, I went back to school and I talked to my advisor and, and I, he, was in, he was a philosopher, but he was very knowledgeable about Japan. And I told him this story and I said, how would you explain the different reactions to Mount Fuji? He said something very profound. He said, okay, let's start with the Japanese. They're rice farmers. They, they're nature worshipers. That's what Shinto's all about. There's gods in everything. It's in the mountains, it's in the rivers, it's in the rocks and the trees. So you feel this kind of reverence, like you're, you're viewing a deity. And yeah. he said, they're process-oriented. They're not climbing the mountain to get to the top. They're climbing the mountain to enjoy the view on the way. Mm. He said, the Americans, we're Westerners. Western culture comes from the Judeo-Christian view of the world. And he goes, that's a desert religion. And if you're in the desert, nature sucks. And (laughs) you're trying to get away from nature, and you look at nature as an adversary. That's why we want to conquer the mountain. That's why we, even though he didn't mean Mount Fuji was a son of a bitch, 
he almost looked at it as something to conquer, you know, and it, it, it come, you know, the, the cultural things come from these deep places that are not, we're not conscious of. And I thought the whole concept of coming from a desert religion makes a lot of mm. sense because the Jewish people wanted to get out of the desert. You have to, it's an unpleasant place and versus the Japanese who had, the land that gave them rice, the ocean that gave them fish, they were thankful for everything rather than having this adversarial relationship. So I, I don't know, that was a really kind of an interesting experience I had. Well, that's what makes you a great storyteller. You have a story that, number one, is entertaining. I could see the Rakugo influence <laughs> in that story. And... Not only does it have kind of a punchline, but it also has a moral story behind it and an educational angle as well. So we're all smarter now (laughs) for listening to that story. (laughs) Thank you. It's a fun story. I'll never forget it, you know. Your blog, The Intercultural Twilight Zone which is on your website called Japan Insight. You have these posts which feature a diagram highlighting cross-cultural gaps. It's like a kind of like a, a pyramid schematic where you break down the main topic of misunderstanding at the top of the pyramid and then you drill down at the base. And on one side, you have the Japanese perspective. On the other side, you have the Western perspective. And then you drill down, it goes through like what the in- intentions and the values and the preconceptions, experiences, etc., and most of which are completely the opposite. But the way you present it through this schematic that you've done is so visually pleasing and understanding. How, how did this come about? Um, thank you for saying that. I am a cultural anthropology major, and one of the things I hated about cultural anthropology was the cryptic use of language and the academic approach, and they were trying to pretend it was a science when I think it is, it's an art. It's humans trying to figure out humans, right? And one of the anthropologists that everybody studies in my field is a guy named Edward T. Hall, and and he's a brilliant guy. And he pioneered something called the iceberg model, where he talks about language and the visual stuff that's on the surface. cultural you know traditions and things like that that you can see Mm -hmm. and then he shows the the iceberg below the surface and it's it's you know values and and all the things that you know you can't see how thought processes things like that right and i thought it was a great metaphor but as you mentioned earlier when i do my seminars i tell stories because that's what people want to hear and that's what they remember right And so I needed a vehicle to pour my stories into. And so I took inspiration from Edward T. Hall's model, but I wanted to make it a practical model. So I try to present them in the context of a story and break it down in as simple terms as I can. Not to say this is the end all analysis, but to say, okay, now let's talk about it. Let's discuss it at the top is language, and it's also nonverbal language as well, right? Gestures and things like that. And that's what you can see on the surface, right? So if the other person is speaking a different language, you know it's a different language, right? And you know you're not communicating, but you know it's on the surface. And what we say and what we're thinking doesn't always match, right? Whether it's the Japanese or American. 
So that's the first level below the surface, the first drill down, if you will. And what we think is based on assumptions that we make. Some of them are conscious and some of them are unconscious. And so that would be the next level down. And then below that would be the values and the traditions and your experiences and your history. So I tried to simplify it so people could kind of understand it and analyze these little stories I tell to say what you think is going on on the surface is not what's going on below the surface. And you're, you're going to often think that you communicated when you really didn't. And that's the right. most dangerous thing. If you yeah. know you didn't communicate, at least you know, right? But it's when you think you communicated and you didn't when misunderstandings occur. It's more emotional learning than kind of logical learning, I think. Yeah. And I think that's what people remember, you know? And the thing is, for so for the last 20 years before I moved back to Japan, I was working with people in a factory. Many of them didn't have a college education. Of course, I worked with managers too. And they would have to sit in my training session for four hours or sometimes eight hours. And I had to keep them engaged. And if you're going through and doing academic dry speak, you're going to lose them. So I had to try to make it entertaining, learning. Anybody who, who studied anthropology knows that human, the human brain evolved to understand stories. That's before we had writing. That's how we preserved our culture by telling stories to the next generation, you know. And uh, there's a great book called The Storytelling Animal. I highly recommend it. But it, it just talks about how humans crave stories. So I always try to incorporate stories, humor, to keep people engaged. And, and because people will remember a story, but they won't remember the do's and don'ts that you give them. I can draw a similarity to my business or any consumer goods company for that matter. A lot of brands talk about you know quality, design, the materials, the warranties. You know, almost any brand can make this subjective claim, but there's not too many companies that have kind of an emotional brand story. And what I try to do with with my with my brand, for example, is you know I could say my brand is a 300 year old. A German brand, and we have a factory in Japan. So uh, I could say our products combined hundreds of years of German technology and Japanese craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot more memorable than saying yeah. we make great knives. Yeah, for sure. And what's the that's classic story? Uh, Steve Jobs saying a thousand songs in your pocket. You know, those kind yeah. of, instead of saying that these are the specs of this device. And I know that's kind of a cliche example, but it's so brilliant. This cliche is maybe Zig Ziglar's quote, people buy for emotional reasons, not for logical reasons. Yeah. Really fascinating. Did you ever study presentations or storytelling or anything like that to get to this level of storytelling that you've achieved? Well, I come from a family of storytellers. There's seven kids in our family. And we're all completely different, but one common thread is we're all storytellers. And my mom and dad were too. So I think it started there. Growing up, listening to comedy, you know, Carlin was a great storyteller. Um, and in college, I studied Rakugo for a couple of reasons. One, it was my thesis. The other reason is um, I love comedy and I, I wanted to understand the Japanese sense of humor 
because when I came here, I brought with me stereotypes that the Japanese were not a humorous people, which is a stupid stereotype to have, but I was young. I didn't know. It struck me how they had a great sense of humor and it, it humanizes people. And I, and in addition to that, I, I was, I studied anthropology. So I wanted to improve my Japanese. So I started studying Rakugo and they're master storytellers. And it, it came in handy because I kind of emulated their Japanese. And I'm, of course, I'm not even close to their level, but I learned a lot in terms of cadence and how to tell a joke. And, and, and I used it when I gave seminars in Japanese. So yeah. I think that helped, you know, and being an Eikaiwa sensei helped too, to, you know, get your chops going a little bit early on. Rakugo is interesting because a lot of foreigners, even foreigners that speak Japanese, Rakugo seems anticlimactic because you'll hear a story for five minutes or sometimes even longer. 20, 20 it, minutes, yeah. Yeah, and then it gets to the climax, and it's it's kind of funny, but... I don't know if it's worth 20 minute investment funny. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it's a different style for sure. But what is brilliant about Rakugo is the process of getting through that story. They paint a picture in your head because they're doing all the characters. So one person, he's being the old lady, he's being the angry guy, he's being the the village idiot and right. he's carrying on this conversation and it conjures up like a movie inside your head. And that sure. to me, that is, it's brilliant. I don't know if any, I mean, I guess American stand-up comedy has a little of that, but they don't do a lot of different characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it's theater. I don't really get the, the hit the person over the head with the rolled up newspaper uh, type yeah. comedy. Is there any insight that you have then on the differences to me, the most fascinating area of difference is sarcasm and irony. As you know, Japanese don't have a Don Rickles kind of aggressive, make fun of the audience kind of humor. If anything, it's more self-effacing because right. humility plays well and embarrassing people is, is taboo. But, you know, I've seen a lot of so-called, you know, Japan experts write on blogs and in articles that, the Japanese don't have sarcasm. And, you know, a lot of people don't know what the definition of sarcasm is. It's it's a kind of irony. Okay, so Japanese have irony. Sarcasm is a kind of irony where you belittle somebody, right? right. To say across the board that they don't have sarcasm is actually not true. I talked to my wife about this because I'm like, because, you know, we've had these discussions before. And I said, can you think of... Japanese sarcasm. And she said, yeah, here's an example. If you want to make fun of somebody, it's got to be someone in your inner group, like your daughter or your son. And she'll right. say, uchi no ojo-sama. Okay. As you know, ojo-sama is a, a term of respect that you're not supposed to say about your own inner group, right. but this you're making fun of her by my daughter, the princess. Yeah, exactly. My daughter, the princess. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. it's okay to be sarcastic toward yourself or people in your inner group or a made-up character like Manzai. They make fun of each other. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. 
you know, if we watch the Japanese comics, a lot of times what passes for humor is just almost bullying. I've looked at that and I've thought there is a correlation between the humiliation that passes as comedy in society. Isn't sometimes the way Japanese humor is portrayed on TV a kind of a form of accepted bullying? Yeah, maybe. I mean, because it's such a repressed society, maybe that's the that's the safety valve where you let off steam, kind of analogous to how the Japanese have to act perfectly during the day and they go out and drink and they act like idiots. And I, I, I mean that with love because I, I have a lot of yeah, friends. We're all yeah. idiots when we go drink. We are, we are all idiots, <laughs> uh, myself included. What's your favorite Japanese word? Hmm. I, I don't know if I, I never really thought about it. And I know you gave me warning, so I probably should should have something. You know, Ikigai, where it's what you're good at, what you are passionate about, and what you can get paid for. Yeah. That little middle part where those three circles intersect, that's your Ikigai. Yeah. Yeah, your reason for living, right? Ikigai is a good one. And I often wonder... Was it some foreigner that put that together or was it a Japanese person who put it together? That's a good point. I love the concept. I don't know if Japanese people really follow it. Good observation, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I look at these poor salary men who go to work every day and slave away in, a, in the office and, and I feel like, do they really have meaning in their life? Do they? What is their purpose for living? Do they? Does it matter? Are they? Are they just doing it to, you know, to to keep the harmony and to fulfill their duties to their family? And I don't know. It's yeah. like they they Japanese don't feel like I have a right as an individual to be happy. I have a responsibility to the people around me to fulfill whatever role they think I'm supposed to fulfill. So I I see it as an ideal that it's a beautiful idea but I wish more of them could fulfill it. That's a very good observation. You recently wrote a book called Simple English for Japanese Medical Professionals. Did you include a COVID-19 reference? It was before we wrote it before COVID, you know, so unfortunately, no. Um, but thanks yeah. for bringing that up. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Tell us about this book. This was actually a favor for a friend. So, I have a friend of mine. His name is Dr. Kato, smart guy. And I've known him for 40 years. Back when I was in college, he was my English student. And he is absolutely the best student I've ever had. I didn't really, I got burned out on English, but I never stopped with him because I just had so much fun with this guy. He sent me an email and said, I'm writing a book and would you like to write it with me? And I'd like to write it because I think with at the time, everybody thought the Olympics were going to be held. There's going to be an influx of foreigners, and the Abe administration is talking about issuing, I don't know, what, 350,000 visas for foreign workers. I don't even think it ever got that far. But at the time, that was the talk. So he said, right. you know, there's going to be foreigners flooding our medical system, and I think they really need a book. And I goes, I did a lot of market research, and all the books are used technical English. And he goes, I'd like to write a book that is easy and, and facilitates communication. Would you do it with me? And I said, sure. So it was just a fun collaboration to help out my friend. 
I, I didn't do it for the money or to sell a million copies. I just did it for fun. And if it helps yeah. people, it's great. And if I make some money, great, you know, but uh, we'll see. Is it available on Amazon? It's available on Amazon, uh, but I should say Sanzando has their, they're, they're the publisher and they want me to push their website. So I'm pushing that too. Could you say it again? Sanzando. Yeah. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, yeah. uh, and that's uh, both ebook is available and uh, hard copy as well. Tim, is there anything you want to talk about or anything you want to mention or anything you want me to ask you? No, I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of culture and dealing with the Japanese, I feel blessed to be here. And for other foreigners who are living here, I hope that they can um, focus on the good things about living here, not focus on the negative. There's negatives everywhere and see themselves as ambassadors to help educate the Japanese to, to better deal with foreigners and to break down stereotypes that they have of us. Some of them maybe are fair, but some of them are not. And uh, appreciate the good things because uh, you can dwell on the negatives. You could say, oh, they'll never accept us. But you know what? There's some really good things about not being part of that group. There's advantages to being an, a foreigner here. And I think foreigners have a much easier life here than Japanese do. And I feel very, very lucky to be here right now. Uh, I hope other foreigners who are here uh, feel the same way. I'm really glad to hear you say that. And it's, it, you know, it's like, yapari. you you are as advertised. And I feel the same toward you because I feel like you're a very authentic person. I think that's what we should be. Just be who you are. And I'm hoping that you will be the next uh, Japan podcast, Joe Rogan. <laughs> now in Zen Japan, thank you for spending your time and being on the podcast uh, today. Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And that, my friends, was Mr. Tim Sullivan, a very authentic person and super sharp when it comes to teaching intercultural communications. Check him out on LinkedIn. There you will find all his links to his website, his excellent blog, The Intercultural Twilight Zone, and also where you can find his new book, Simple English for Japanese Medical Professionals. Thank you for listening to the Now in Zen Japan podcast. If you liked it, please leave a comment or at least a positive review on iTunes. Until next time, thanks everyone.